We are oppressed. We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against the common enemy. The United States is a mafia government. No one has done more damage and degradation and murder, rape, and robbery than Europeans. Yes, therefore, in order to escape confrontation with their true criminal nature, they must accuse others of being criminals. But because of that, they must become upset with the criminality of other people. And black folk become those other people, you see. One day, when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be Oh, one day when the war is won, we will be sure, we will be sure. Oh, glory, glory, oh, glory. This is our common ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Because the Black Lives Matter movement emerged under a black president, black attorney general, and black homeland security, and they couldn't deliver, you see? So that when you talk about the masses of black people, the precious poor and working class black people, poor and working class brown, red, yellow, whatever color, they're the ones who are left out and they feel so thoroughly powerless, helpless, hopeless, then you get rebellion. And we've reached the point now, it's a choice between nonviolent revolution, and by revolution what I mean is the democratic sharing of power, resources, wealth, and respect. If we don't get that kind of sharing, you're going to get more violent explosions. America's chickens! Coming home! Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You're going to sing to swim, you're going to learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're going to learn the truth. Alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Passes a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. And our 
our common ground. It is the sanctuary for black truth. We appreciate your support. We appreciate your attendance. Please get in your seats because you know you all come in a little late and and uh, everything is all set up for you. So the best seats in the house are at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And if you have friends, we allow you to connect with them during this program and you can let them know that we are on the air. As we come into tonight's show, I do want to remind you that even though trans- public transportation and all kinds of restaurants and all kinds of even movie theaters are open, we are still in a pandemic. And I'm asking listeners of this show to stay safe, be safe, wear masks when you have to go out. And if you don't have to go out and you are at risk, especially some of our um, listeners who have respiratory and pulmonary illness, please be careful. COVID-19 is not something that you play with. It's not because you can't see it. You can't hear it and you cannot feel it. We are in a pandemic. It's part of a global pandemic and there is no vaccine. Many of you feel, oh, because you can get COVID-19 and lots of people are recovering from the treatment for it, but they are also sacrificing their well-being. We're finding more and more, 20%, as a matter of fact, from statistics and a report issued by the CDC, 20% of those who recovered from hospitalization of COVID-19 are seeing a requirement for the rest of their lives, some dialysis. People are losing limbs. People are having heart conditions that they never had before as a result of the virus. Please be safe. As we come into this show, we are reporting as of yesterday, which was Friday, 2.5 million Americans are infected. 124,300 have died. In the state where I'm in, there are 122,500 cases. In New York, there still remains 395,000 cases. And in New Jersey, there are 172,000 cases. Texas, 137-plus cases. We also was very um, inspired to hear that the House on yesterday, for the first time in history, for the first time uh, for in 50 years of, more than 50 years of an effort, there is the House voted for D.C. statehood. We need to stay on it. We need to make those who uh, would vote against it in the Senate, who would um, 
serve as a barrier to getting it on the floor for argument and debate and discussion, those people should be shamed. And the first one I'll call out is not our friend, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader. So tonight at Our Common Ground, I am so pleased to be able to have with us Dr. Ron Daniels. He is a veteran social and political activist. He was an independent candidate for President of the United States in 1992. He served as Executive Director of the National Rainbow Coalition in 1987 and Southern Regional Coordinator and Deputy Campaign Manager for Jesse Jackson for, for President Campaign in 1988. He has served uh, for from 1993 to 2005 as the first African-American Executive Director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. And during his tenure there, the Con- Center for Constitutional Rights emerged as a major force fighting against police brutality and misconduct church burnings, hate crimes, voter disenfranchisement, and environmental racism. Dr. Daniels is the founder and president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century. Uh, You know them as IBW, as I refer to them many, many times, a progressive African-centered, action-oriented resource center dedicated empowering people of African descent and people of marginalized communities. He is also the host of the Vantage Point Radio Show, a weekly current affairs program hosted by him at WBAI 99.5 FM Radio, Pacifica Radio, on Mondays from 3 to 4. And you can catch him live uh, right there at WBAI, which streams on the Internet. He is also the author of Still on This Journey, The Vision and Mission of Dr. Ron Daniels. His book focuses on the vision, mission, values, and philosophy which have served as the driving force behind his lifelong journey for justice. And it also provides a perspective on the Institute of Black World 21st Century. And we are just so pleased to have Dr. Ron Daniels join us tonight. Hello there, Dr. Daniels. So glad to have you back. Well, Madam Chairperson, it's glad to have to be back with you. And I say Madam Chairperson because you were the chairperson of my independent campaign for president in 1992. You were chairperson of the campaign for A New Tomorrow. So I hope uh, our Common Ground audience knows that and is aware of that. And it's so good to hear you back on the air. I wondered where you had been, and I knew you were out there doing something somewhere. But uh, when I got word that you had uh, reemerged and were uh, creating this uh, this space, our common ground. I was delighted and uh, privileged to be with you this evening. Well, thank you, Ron. It was also 
one of the most enlightening and uh, educational experiences of my life to have been able to support Campaign for a New Tomorrow. It is a bookmark uh, in my career in uh, as an activist, and I I longed uh, for us to do it again, but we still have time. And the other thing I want people to know, you are one of the oldest Our Common Ground voices. You uh, came to Our Common Ground in 1989, and you were my first guest on the Our Common Ground TV show, which uh, broadcasts here in Palm Beach County, Florida. <laughs> so we have a lot of history. Wow, we I forgot about that. I mean, this is so many things that have gone, gone on. I, I forgot all about that. Gee, that is, uh, that is. I, I do remember connecting with you. I don't know. I don't know if it was through Bob Law or whatever, but I, I know eventually coming to West Palm Beach and then eventually when you moved to Boston, coming there as well, and then we traveled around the country, the Pittsburgh and various other places, and I remember, you know, the historic journey to California when uh, your powerful voice uh, was able to beat back certain imposters and we were able to get the nomination <laughs> of the Peace and Freedom Party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I try to... Um try to keep up with what's going on with Gerald Horn a lot. But the other player has just simply disappeared. I don't That's know what right. she's doing in New York. She just disappeared. We we actually beat her back and shamed her into figuring out that she was way off track. <laughs> so oh, that's right. That was, that's, that's, right. Some, that's some good political history. But I'll tell you, uh, some years ago, when Barack Obama w- uh, was running uh, for president, uh, in his first term, uh, my daughter, who remembered the show that we did when you were running for president, and we had a group of high schoolers come in and discuss with you the idea of what it would mean to have the first president, the first black president of the United States, which was a TV broadcast. She used that. Um, that tape to do a presentation about Barack Obama when she was doing the campaigning for him in 2007. Oh wow! Mm, mm, mm. Wow. So yeah, so you got a lot, a lot of, of history, Mister. <laughs> yeah, well, my wife Mary France Daniels talks about that all the time. You know, she says, you know, there there's so many. I mean, you know, you do this work long enough. There's so many things out there. I just keep moving and. You know, I I very seldom look back. I mean, there's rich archives of things all over the place. It would be great to see some of those things. I mean, I had my own television show in Youngstown, Ohio, for uh, 18 years, and you know, I don't think I've ever gone back to look look at any of those editions. I guess at some stage, uh, maybe I will. But the great, uh, and I know this is certainly true of the work that you've done. Uh, the great pleasure of it all is when I get word from someone, you know, who says, uh, look, I used to watch your show when you were in Youngstown, and I used to bring young people on talking about serious topics, but I'd bring on the break dancers and the poppers and everybody and give them a chance yeah. to show off, and all their yeah. families would be watching and everything, and, and but then they would get hooked into the conversation, and, you know, I've I've had several people just call and 
you know, say how they were transformed, how that impacted their lives. Um, a group of students from Hiram College, because the other thing I've enjoyed doing for many years is I've, you know, I am, you know, Ron Walters and I were great friends, and for some reason or another, <clears throat> there are people who still somehow mistake us, even though we don't look alike. Uh, you may remember Thad Mathis yes. out of Philadelphia. Thad and I actually do look alike. He's shorter, and I'm a little taller, but we actually look remarkably alike. But there are people who still will come up and call me, you know, even though, of course, Dr. Walters has passed away, they will call me, you know, Dr. Walters, and I have to Walters. correct them. Uh-huh. And But I think it's because, you know, we were joined at the hip. He was this, this prolific scholar and writer. Uh, yeah. You know, he did, I don't know how many books he produced. I was more activist than, uh, than, than scholar, though doing both. I was more a prolific, you know, essayist. Um, but, again, uh, it, it's just interesting. Just the other day I had a group of students, you know, from Hiram College when I was there in 1975 to probably about 1977, and remarkable. That's the other thing I have enjoyed so much is being able to open up students' eyes and to teach them critical thinking and getting them to see the world differently. And I had a, just a remarkable group of students. In fact, I talk about the mother of one of the students I had at um, Hiram College ended up being my um, uh, the, the leading faculty member on my committee when I got my Ph.D. It was really weird how that all worked out. But I got a note just the other day, and some of these students say, "We want to reconnect. We want to have." And so we're going to. I'm reconnecting with these students because many of them went on to do really, really incredible things. So yeah, yeah, these are yeah. the things that I was, validate I was you in and Boston make you. Last, last yeah. summer, and ran into one of my students at Northeastern University, and at the time she was working to get her bachelor's degree so that she could get a promotion from being. A clerical administrative clerical employee into a higher level job and I ran into her last summer and now she is the director of the Massachusetts Water Authority wow that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah it, 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 it does that I mean but you just have a remarkable history both both as an activist as a teacher, and as a broadcaster, because you've been broadcasting for a very, very long time. And um, I, I just think that people really, for those of you who do not, have not picked up this book, still on this journey, the vision and mission of Dr. Ron Daniels, it is, it, it is remarkable. You didn't think I had read it. I got it, I think, December. And then Tara stole it from me. And it's it's in her possession. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, because if uh, I say if I say Ron, she says who who Ron Daniels because we were like connected to the hip for all right, of her right. teenage years. <laughs> and my love to Mary, by the way, and to Don Rojas, who I hope is listening. I'm I was so worried about him for a while, but for him to help me. Uh, get you connected so we could get you on. You know, Don, Ron, is doing, I... Don is doing much better now. He really is. In fact, he, I say activism is good for your health. Here's a man who was at death's doorstep, though we and we prayed him back, and he mm-hmm. really asked God and the, and the ancestors to give him 10 more years, you know, so he could continue. And he is 
We're honored that he's the director of communications for the Institute of the Black World 21st Century, which is a real gift because his experience is so deep. Uh, that's why our website is absolutely bumping and, and will continue it to really be bumped is. up even further. Uh, but he was, of course, um, the uh, the press secretary for Maurice Bishop, uh, the People's Revolutionary Government of Grenada, one of the really great um, figures, you know, of the of the nineteenth or yes. of the twentieth century, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. So your daughter's doing fine. Uh, you know, this this work. I mean, he's really bounced back. Uh, the cancer's in remission. He still has to take heavy medication and all that, but it's in remission. So we thank God and the ancestors for that. Yes, we we really do. Now, I titled this episode of Our Common Ground, The Black Firewall, because I think that organizations like your organization, the Institute of the Black World, um, and for those of you who would like to learn more about it, it's IBW21.org. But I, I think that what we have to do is begin to build or secure a firewall. You know, a firewall in computing is a network security system. And it does two things. It monitors and controls attacks. It protects against all kinds of unwanted access. And it's a barrier to keep destructive forces away from your network. And my sense is that in the black community, nationwide, we need some kind of firewall. And I say that, Ron, and I'll let you take this concept and run with it because I know you know how to do that is because we've got loads of little cells going on. And despite the Internet, despite all of the various forms of communication that we have, it doesn't seem as though there is a cohesion going on so that one foot knows what the other foot is doing after the other foot does it to coordinate moving forward. Hello. That's my that's my concept. Oh, 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 I, firewall. I, oh, oh, okay. I think things got kinda of quiet there. I thought maybe we could think <laughs> I was yeah. waiting for you to come in. Well well I I, I, I agree with that. Um yeah, there is. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have uh, any semblance of a united front on the national level. That does not mean, however, that there's not robust movement. There is robust movement. The essence of what we try to do with the Institute of the Black World 21st Century, frankly, is to deal with this concept of disconnectedness. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, when there was a discussion about whether I would run for president again. You know, my sense is I wanted to help others do that. I'm still a strong proponent of a third force in American politics. have written extensively about that. 
But what I decided to do was to look at the fact that at a certain level, as I was traveling from community to community, you know, particularly after the Jackson campaign, people would be saying, Brother Ron, you know, these are the worst white folks in the world and nothing happening and, you know, and they would just, the movement is dead and, you know, I was saying all of this, but but they these people in every one of these communities were involved in some level of struggle. They were doing things. They were fighting against police brutality, which has been here with us forever. They were struggling to try to get some control over education, perhaps to get, you know, a curriculum of inclusion or infusion or an African-centered curriculum, or they were fighting, you know, trying to deal with, with, with housing. I mean, the various issues they were organizing around. The problem is that people who were organizing around the same issues in the same community were not talking to each other, let alone from community to yeah. community. And so what I decided that, that, you know, was on a very simple concept um, is that what we needed to do was to create a structure which would begin to uh, focus on collaboration. You know, how do we we get people who are doing similar things working with each other on the premise, frankly, that there's extraordinary genius in our community, wisdom, We do know a lot. We have a lot in our community. Some of it we hide from ourselves because we don't talk about our oral histories and our backgrounds and so forth, particularly the older generation. But we are each other's best teachers. As Abel Mabel Thomas out of uh, Georgia saying, we are the leaders we've been looking for. And so what we began to do with the Institute of the Black World 21st Century, and in in a biblical sense, I think it's Ezekiel 37, you know, it's the disconnected, the can the can these dry bones live, you know, the and they cannot live as long as the ankle bones is disconnected from the from the thigh bone or the leg bone. I mean, you know, so I'm saying. So you have to have first and foremost a kind of ideal, uh, an ideology, a sense of who you are, and a sense of spirit and culture. And then you have to be connected. And when you do that, that body that is fragmented and dysfunctional or dead comes to life. And so what it, what, what that has come to mean is something that we call promoting or cultivating a culture of collaboration to heal and empower black families, communities, and nations. And I use those words intentionally, a culture. Because when you have a culture of collaboration, you collaborate, it's in your bones. You, don't, it, you do it because it's, it is natural to do. And I guess one of the early examples that happened even before we, we, we sort of, you know, was an illustration of that was the environmental justice movement under the leadership of one of my dear beloved friends, now passed away, Damu Smith. Yeah. I mean, Damu Smith was able to pull together people who were working on environmental issues under one umbrella all over the country. They didn't surrender their individual organizations, but they, they were much more effective because they became a national and local force. Well, that's what we try to do, frankly, with the Institute of the Black World 21st Century. So, so I agree with you. So what we've done is, if you know, it's one of these days I'll shoot you a sort of a, I guess somewhere in the, on the website it might be that we have this configuration of collaborative structures that we've built. So around criminal justice policy, the war on drugs, you know, we found people who in the same community doing police accountability, anti-violence work, war on drugs, but they were not, net, they, didn't even, they weren't even a conversation with each other. So what we have done is, in at least three cities, uh, we tried to pull them together, uh, Pittsburgh and um, uh, Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. Uh, so they, they meet every three months. 
we have a Black Family Summit. There's a configuration of some 27 uh, socially conscious black professional organizations that you would know about. You know, the social workers, the psychiatrists, the uh, uh, black administrators in child welfare. They are doing an at All Healers Mental Health Alliance an amazing job of just since Katrina to have a call tomorrow night. For, for every since Katrina, they've been on the they're on the phone looking at these human made and man made disasters and how can they provide culturally appropriate services. And I could go on and on and on. There's the Pan African Unity Dialogue. The National African American Reparations Commission is a collaborative structure. So yes, we need to promote that. And what I what I what I see at the national level, unfortunately, even now, you know, I mean, you got you 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 don't have. There's not a coherent. There used to be uh, with Walter Fontroy, whom you know, he had the Black Leadership Roundtable at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there was the I forget there was another leadership formation that at least had the NACP and all those were at least they don't even have that anymore. So the major mm-hmm. groups are not speaking in any kind, anywhere near one voice, and that is a problem. So yes, we need we need a we need we need a a, a, a firewall in, in the sense that we need to be looking in words in group identification, looking at how we forge. I mean, even on the question of a black agenda, I wrote this article talking about will Biden have a black agenda? <clears throat> he has come up with a. Lift every voice uh, agenda, which is not so bad actually, in some regards. But the fact of the matter is, I also point in there that every everybody everybody will be whispering their own agenda. There is no there's no common agenda that's come up between the Urban League, the NACP, the Rainbow Push Coalition, and National Council of Negro. When you name fifteen twenty organizations, it, it, it's not there. And that's a problem. And then let me just say, tell you something else. A problem. I call it the phenomenon of the pop-up Negro. You know, and we have lost seats in different places because a, a a white minority will slip in and get elected in a majority black seat. Memphis, Tennessee, is an example where Cohen is actually a good guy, progressive guy. I mean, he's being reelected by black people because he is progressive. But that was a seat held by the Fords, and of course, he ran for Senate and. But then people could not get together to figure out, okay, well, how do we figure out the, the top two candidates or three candidates? So you had a phenomenon of the pop-up Negro, a whole bunch of the Negroes running. And as a result, a minority of white people combined with a few black people, uh, uh, you know, elected uh, Cohen. Now, Cohen is a good guy, by the way, so I'm not bashing him. He's a good guy. He's a progressive. But it just says that if we had internal political process, like we had coming out of Gary when we were doing black political assemblies and doing black political agendas. There's some people who even don't even know what that's about. It's not even in their yeah, consciousness yeah. anymore. Yeah. So, yes, we need to continue to build that infrastructure. On the other hand, let me just say this. The movement for black lives, and, and people should understand there's Black Lives Matter, the three founders, and there are chapters of Black Lives Matter around the country. Though I must say that, in a way, Black Lives Matter has become, has taken on a personality of itself. Almost anything now, and I'm not saying this negatively, is Black Lives Matter. In fact, it's, it can be somewhat problematical because some people go off and say they are and they, they may not be credentials and whatnot. What, is, what, is, what, is, what is, is equally important is this umbrella, the movement for black lives. The movement for black lives, which sort of came out of the thrust of Black Lives Matter, particularly coming out of Ferguson, and we have a great relationship with many of them. There must be a hundred organizations 
under that umbrella. And they are really, really working very, very strongly. And, and they and they're very respectful in terms of of trying to look back and learn, you know, from what was in the past and so forth. They have put together a policy agenda, and they work on it. And in fact, maybe they work on it a little too much, but they, but they, but they're doing. They have the idea of doing the process and speaking with one voice mm-hmm. and whatnot. So that is an amazing development that's helping to drive a lot. Now the problem is all too often is that and I remember I don't know what it was, something was jumping off and I was in New Orleans and there was one group, Black Lives Matter Movement for Black Lives over at the Ashe Center and then it was a group of veterans over and we I mean we should have all been you know, this so we have to bridge yeah. that cross generational connectivity and we and IBW also work hard at that as well. So we do we are doing some of that bridging, but we need much more of that bridging to take place. So that's a long way of saying yes, we need that firewall because we're much more effective if in fact we are coherent, if in fact we have uh, an, an internal structure. You may recall I did this thing called a black community development plan. And that black community development plan had five different structures that really talk about how you organize ourselves internally. You know, having a leadership forum, a leadership summit that brings together uh, various organizations, the Black Voter Mobilization Project. I mean, so that we're all working together around uh, a voter a voter uh, mobilization issues. The point is specialization in the division of labor. Everybody does not need to do the same thing. I mean, we're not we're not trying to do voter registration, voter protection issues. That's Barbara Arnwine, that's Melanie Campbell. There's a cluster of people doing it. Now, we have people who are, who we dip into, and, I mean, Barbara Arnwine will be on my show Monday, for example. But, you know, we that's their lane. We know what they're doing. So why would the IBW then launch a voter registration? You see what I'm saying? But yes. that often happens. We end up duplicating as, as, as opposed to wisely doing specialization, division of labor, marshaling our resources so that we can be much more effective. In, in terms of organizing, I think um, it, it, it just occurs to me that the kind of fragmentizing that you you have described is the, the kind kind of lesson that we have not learned over the years. This has been plaguing black community uh, organizing for a long time, and 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 as we come into um, as we came into the late 19, um, I mean, early two, 2000s, we find gentrification, I, I found, uh, in my uh, organizing activities in Boston, that gentrification really complicated matters further um, on the, on the, on, in, the, in the problem of fragment, fragmentizing what people were interested in, where people lived, and how you begin, uh, and and what instruments you use to try to bring uh, those entities together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I I I hear you, and I think that going back to your comments, that we have to go back into the idea of having both civic organizing and activism academies. In communities, right. Otherwise, the we're we're always going to have 
these kinds of problems because people get into organizing and the identification of targets, the identification of locations, the identifications of similar and same resources doesn't get done well. Well, let me just say this. The other, because this is a, a point that we don't talk about as much as we could. I think this moment is beginning to to address some of that. And that is, in one of the essays I wrote really after Katrina, uh, in fact, we came up with something called the Martin Luther King Malcolm X uh, Community Revitalization uh, Program. It was really a way of talking about a, a, the, the need for an urban martial plan with certain kinds of characteristics uh, to it. And one one uh, one of our uh, persons who was a young person said, I never heard of a Marshall Plan. That wouldn't resonate with young people. So we said, okay, we'll call it the Martin Luther King Malcolm X Plan or whatever. And we laid it out. But one of the things in that analysis that we put out there is that, that we have two black Americas. One black America, which is the black America that I'm privileged to be in, is never, you know, is is is, 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 is when I was younger, I would not have imagined frankly, that I would have done as much as I've done, you know, I mean, mm. to live reasonably well. I mean, given coming out of the Hill District of Pittsburgh and the experiences that I came out of and so forth. But beyond that, that other black America really includes, you know, people who are top executives. I mean, there are mayors. There are all kinds of people who are doing this, this really expanded middle class and somewhat of a, a, a small upper class in black America. But there's the other America. That's the one that's marginalized. That's the one when I call America's dark ghettos. Those are the people who got stranded uh, with Katrina. They had no no automobiles. They had no transportation. They were the poorest of the poor. And Malcolm would say they're catching more hell than ever before. You know, one one black America had the ability to move out to the suburbs and the exurbs and 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 really, you know, only sentimentally maybe come back uh, into the inner city every now and then. But but this other had could not do that. They were trapped and are still trapped. Except now you hit on the other piece that, that people need to also look at. The Fergusons of the world are the function of gentrification. That is to say the displacement of black people and black culture. And so when you go to Ferguson, these are people who were in were in the in, in key sections of St. Louis that now have been pushed out of St. Louis. You see the same thing when you go to uh, Seattle. I mean, people have taken me to show the traditional black community that was thriving and so forth, gone. These people have moved out to Tacoma and various other places. Atlanta, Georgia, and the, some of the exurbs now are not just the, the affluent ones. They're the ones that people have escaped because they've been driven out of the inner city. Yeah. Same thing in, in, in Washington, D.C., may be the most affected by that. So you have and, that. And the same forces, the same forces that caused redlining, in communities of 50 years ago have are the architects of the of this problem that you've just described gentrification because when you go into cities like Boston and New York and uh Chicago and San Antonio and Dallas and you start removing 2 to 300 units of federally funded housing, those people have to go somewhere and they're not going to go where where that housing existed first time um, originally. 
Well, no, they won't be able to afford it. So it's market-driven right. to some degree. It, 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 they can't afford it. You know, I mean, Willie Wilson, you know, um, uh, in, in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, African-centered pastor for many, many years. Uh, he tells the story of having bought up, you know, the church bought up many, many properties with the idea of developing them. They had, the, you know, they had the, the mortgages on them, and they were paying the taxes on them. Well, once they... This may have been well-intended, perhaps, but, you know, development. So, therefore, they, the Department of Homeland Security or one of those departments built a major structure in southeast Washington, D.C. Well, guess what happened? All the property values began to shoot up. And he talked about the fact that they can't afford the tax bill anymore. Then all of a sudden, you know, the word is, you know, now every so you see the folks walking the dogs, and the next thing you see is the Whole Foods. <laughs> yeah. And these are the these are the proverbial signs that gentrification is at hand, and so black people can't afford the neighborhoods that they were in. Now, those who hold on, you know, we may prosper and do quite well. But but the issue you're you're getting at is this class division that's there that we need to 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 breach. And I think uh, Ellis Coase, you remember Ellis Coase, he wrote a book many, yes. many years ago that people forgot about. He called The Rage of the Privileged Class. As a and matter of fact, about the, Ellis is going to be with us in August. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 and I'll, I'll never forget him because he was with the Chicago Tribune or one of those papers. He was with us in 1976 and when we when Della said, this is not my moment, we ran, and, and, you know, for many years. But I never forgot that book because what he was saying then it's the same thing. We now have a group of well-off black people, but they don't escape because they too will be will be victimized by driving by by while black, you know, shopping while black. I mean, and and yeah. now we see also, you know, I mean, brother Arbery, who was, you know, I mean, he was, you know, people try to stigmatize people. They say, oh well, you yeah. know, and that's the first yeah. thing that happens. They want to look at what's a, he was he was you know he was all right. But it doesn't matter, yeah. it didn't, and for none of us it doesn't matter. And what has happened now, I think that is the the effect of uh, of George Floyd's death, is that a lot of people who were on the sidelines, a lot of people who had been feeling the rage of the privileged class, because there is that privileged class. So, so if I'm seeing people who are now talking about, you know, you don't know what we go through. Well, what they go through in many instances is the inconvenience of being profiled. You know, they're, they're doing yes. well, but they, they're outraged by it because they should not have to be profiled. They're, they're, they've done everything. They're, they're successful. They dress right. They, I mean, all that, but it doesn't matter. They are still seen, it's like Malcolm said, you know, at the end of the day, you're still seen as a black person, and therefore you could be George Floyd, you know, irrespective of your station in life. And I think that is that that may that may move to with some of these artists and athletes that may begin to help bridge some of that divide that has taken place. People reinvesting black in, in in the black community, we coming back home, getting back into these neighborhoods. And of course what we really need to do and Reverend Buster Sores has has done a, an incredible job of this as a faith leader in Somerset, New Jersey. It's learning how to do development without displacement because that's what we want. We want yes. development, but we don't want and, our and culture to be displaced, and but, we don't want to be driven out of our neighborhoods. That's exactly what you have just described is exactly what I mean by 
structuring a firewall. One of the problems with uh, people who want to have a voice in our interests, and these are elected officials, and I have to call out the Black um, Congressional Caucus. I have to call out local and state black elected officials uh, after having spent over 20 years as, as a federal officer. I can tell you that the most important tool that any of them will ever have is to know what the law says. And displacement in housing has very specific regulations and local people and state people are not voicing what those regulations require. Mm. And so people are getting away with whatever they want to get away with. Now, and that includes just, housing authorities. Yeah, so let me just read let me just let me just reinforce that. Now people go to our website, ibw21.org. Uh, you'll 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 see the the summit that we did on gentrification, a national emergency summit on gentrification. Uh, that would have been last year. It would have been yeah, 2019. Now, one, by the way, you know one of the things that we suffer from from IBW, and 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 we hopefully will be able to get past this is we have an incredible model and an incredible record. We just don't have any resources. I mean, we we don't have the infrastructure of staff to follow through. We do some of the most amazing gatherings that you could ever consider. I mean, just amazing gatherings. And, and one of them was this National Emergency Summit on Gentrification. Because the way we function and operate is the ability to pull all sectors, that firewall you've been talking about. So we had activists at the table who were upset at elected officials, legitimately so, because they were not necessarily doing their jobs as well as they might have, though it's also to understand what they're going through. I mean, to, to hear that, you have, we have professional planners. Um, uh, someone that you would know was not there but sent many people from this network, Dr. Ntangalizi Sanyika, who is the foremost uh, architect of community economic development and theoretician and practitioner, one of the best in the world. We had all, we had community economic development specialists at the table. We had civil rights human rights, faith leaders at the table, all in the same room, hosted by the Honorable Raj J. Baraka. And we're focusing on Newark for a reason, because we really want to see Newark be a model for the rest of the nation. It yes. was, it was mm-hmm. an absolutely incredible gathering. And one of the things that came out, Mark Morel <clears throat> said, look, the same thing you just said. He said, look, I've been trying to talk to mayors about leveraging and understanding the law because if they understood the law and understood the tools that they had at their disposal, they could block a lot of gentrification. Then came Charles Barron, his wife, he and his wife. Uh, he's, she, he's the now assemblyman Charles Barron. She's now the uh, councilwoman. Now it's called Barron's Rule. People are now calling it Barron Rule because because Charles Barron has made it very clear, and he's chastised elected officials for the same thing, not knowing the rules. So he says in East New York, there is no gentrification in East New York. In fact, black people are moving back into East New York because what he does is he uses the leverage of the community board and the leverage of his sign-off 
She said nothing goes into East New York unless he signs off on it. And then when yes. they want to come, he says, these are the conditions. And if you hold firm and don't get nervous and feel like you've got to take a little something under the table or, or just any development will do, if the developer really wants to do this, then so he makes sure there's affordable housing, there are certain so many units. I mean, he so they have they they want it and they want it bad enough. They have to go by the barren rules, and as a result, been very successful in helping to build out mm-hmm. tremendous affordability in the community and whatnot. And by the way, that's the other thing that's missing, Janice, that you would know about. A lot of people don't. A lot of people have no clue about eras in history where the public space was. Was this, I mean, you know, like now, we're, we have to ne- negotiate with private developers to get affordable housing. Well, back in the day, you just built public housing. You built it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, so and, the, and, and there's, a, a, there's some dangerous, dangerous regulations out there which are in, a, a critical impediments to being able to provide uh, housing needs for working poor and poor people in this country, and the yes. regulations are driving it. Right, and 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 of course, you know, then there's of course these opportunity zones came down, and that's a whole nother story. But we had people at the table who said, "Look, well, that's also blessing or curse. If you understand how to utilize them." In an effective way, you can you can utilize them effectively. There are all kind of things out there that have to do. In fact, I say the ignorance is not bliss; it's catastrophic. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's one of the things I'm starting to, to just throw out there. A lot of it has to do. Knowledge is power. Knowing the system and how to utilize it, even as you seek to change uh, that system, becomes incredibly yeah. uh, important. So, mm-hmm. the other sort of myth that began to prevail is, you know, we had people who began to to advocate for scattered sites, you know, you have to, and, and there's, there, I, I agree, there is, there is a way in which I lived in the Hill District of Pittsburgh, you had, you know, all kind of people in the same community, you had poor people and professional people and all, and that had its advantages, but that does not mean that poor people cannot run their lives if you, in fact, provide the, the necessary services, the necessary um, uh, investment, not just investing in the bricks and mortar, but if you invest in the people. So what happened is people began to tear down public housing, and then they, you know, they did the scattered site and building these, these, you know, these communities that were. And then you, you ended up with a net loss of affordable housing. We know all kind of communities just got wiped out on the assumption mm-hmm. that somehow. Poor people cannot manage. There's one last thing too that really grates my nerve, and I'm really going. Once I get uh, up, my uh, breather, I'm really going. Uh, and, and, and Chris Hayes is a good guy. I like him. But he said the other day, America is more segregated than ever before. Everybody's on the segregation tip. Well, segregation is a legal term. Yes, there are some segregated communities because of redlining and steering of people and blocking people de facto from being able to move where they want to move. Separation is a different question. There are people all across this country, Jews, Italians, Lithuanians, Irish, Chinese, Asians, who choose to live in communities where they want to live. 
That's not segregation because because a group of people are predominantly in an area does not make it segregated unless they were forced to be there. So don't come to us now saying, trying to give us an agenda that somehow we have to all be, quote, unquote, assimilated, because that's what that really is. I mean, the, the struggle was about was was about desegregation. It was about breaking down the laws that prevented us from being able to choose wherever we wanted to live. Now, that choice yeah, could yeah. be that I want to live in a black community. So tell me, therefore, that I am segregated. I'm not. I choose to be in a black community, and I frankly want to see that black community thrive and develop and be strong. And that's not to take anything away from the fact that, you know, uh, diversity is a good thing and people mixing and getting to know each other is fine. I'm, I'm for that. But if I have a choice in trying to build my community between that and power, I'll take power first. I'll take the firewall first. And then later on we can figure out how to get along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, about eight years ago, um, I was assigned as a special mediator in nine cities across the country to negotiate residential preferences in the Chinese community. Mm. It was a very interesting project because the Chinese community was insisting that in all new development inside what they defined as their traditional communities, that residential preference had to be first. And the reason that they won is because they cited the regulations which said in cases of displacement by the federal government in housing, residential preference must be a priority. Mm. And they won. Mm. So, you know, everybody seems to have um, their sense of what their firewalls are. And I think that we have got to, you know, you talked about all doing campaign for a new tomorrow and even before that, before the campaign, you talked about your Marshall Plan and now you call it the Malcolm um King yeah, plan. yeah, we, yeah. We're back. To, I'm back to pushing. I'm back to pushing, and and you know, when we're, we're there's a whole discussion about that anew. Uh, but it's the same concept. We we need massive reinvestment in our communities, and frankly, we also, I mean, at the end of the day, we must also have reparations. They're not the same thing. A Marshall Plan is not reparations. So some people will say, oh well, if we do a Marshall Plan, that'll be black people's reparations. No. Some people, yeah. Try, a black president but, was our reparations. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well. I want my audience to really understand that reparations is about a debt. It's about a debt. It has nothing to do with America building America. It has nothing to do with the uh, what Congress decides how American taxpayers' money should be spent in the structuring and main- maintenance of the existing America, but you know that's that's a long, a long a, another conversation, but, and but maybe an we'll talk about an, it on Wednesday night. Yeah, that's an important but, conversation because that's the distinction between reparations and ordinary what I, what we're calling ordinary public policy. And I can say that that's what we're doing with the National African American Reparations Commission. We're sharpening those definitions so that people don't get tricked into thinking because somebody decided to give you something that's reparations. No, reparations is not 
ordinary public policy. There are specific requirements for reparations, and, and we are very much going to be at the forefront of making sure, oh, as best we can, we get the word out. That's one of the reasons we have the National yeah. African American yeah. Reparations Commission. We have a 10-point program. Your listeners should go to the website and look at that 10-point program, and and we really and, and we have an incredible commission that we pull together, and uh, we're hoping to break into the, uh, you know, into the public discourse forcefully, as the reference point and guide, you know, for how reparations are done not only nationally but in cities like Evanston, Illinois, where we've been very instrumental in helping Robin Ruth Simmons who used to get to be on your show, she's gotten a $10 million reparations program over 10 years. And, you know, $10 million is, you know, it's not, doesn't make up for everything, but it's, it's a right step in the right direction, and we have helped her mm-hmm. to shape that so that these people have to deal with it as reparations and, and relinquish some control and listen to how the people want reparations spent, not somebody deciding, oh, we did wrong, and here's some scholarships. Oh, we did wrong, and here's this. And No, no, that's not how it works. Yes, yes, absolutely. Ron, we're going to take a break, and for those of you who are with us that are just coming in late, our guest tonight is Dr. Ron Daniels. Uh, Dr. Daniels is um, a long experience, long toes in the struggle, um, social and political activist, and he is the founder and president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century, which is... And if you do not know, you can go to ibw21.org, and there are so many resources for you to begin to write your discourse plan for your community. We have got to stop having dinners, having lunches. Well, in the pandemic, we're not doing very, very much of that. But be careful and be forceful and be intentional about what we are talking about in our communities because in addition to where we were when we came into 2017, we are now in a place where there has been so much dismantling and so much um, destruction to the tools to the limited tools, but tools just the same that were available to us. When we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. Ron Daniels about the political firewall. We want to talk to Dr. Daniels also about reparations, and we hope you'll stay with us. Our number is 347-838-9852, and if you want to slip in on uh, kind of late, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and join our chatters in our chat room. Thank you so much for uh, being with us tonight, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Venus Williams. You know, I heard recently that the two main reasons for not getting an annual mammogram are limited access and fear. I know that there are low-cost and even free screenings at some hospitals and clinics, and I've even heard of mobile mammogram units in some areas. Talk about service. Look, I know getting a screening is not as exciting as shopping, but life is for living. So take the first step to breast health. Get the mammogram. For more information, please visit BreastCancerAwareness.com. 
made to realize how black people really feel and how fed up we are without that old compromising sweet talk. Stop sweet talking him. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how, what kind of hell you've been catching and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're listening to... We went out on this, uh, this limb, and I caught it... Uh, I, when I ran for president in 1992 as an independent candidate, the, the, the New York City Sun called me the... You know, because it's like a crazy proposition, right? So they said that Ron Daniels is the guts and faith candidate. And so we undertook this proposition really on guts and faith. But really, vision, guts, and faith. Because this, I think, was an important conversation that needed to be had and it needed to be had at this time and it needed to be had in this institution based on the kinds of relationships that we're building ambassador and and raleigh kimbrough with this institution but our but our ability to to continue these kind of things very much depend on capacity capacity our ability to have the human and material resources to get them done Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. And uh, don't forget, uh, we have added an additional night to this program, and we're calling it Mkuntano, which means assembly, on Wednesday night at 10 p.m., because you know I I stay quiet and, and don't say much before 10 p.m. at night. 
So we hope you'll enjoy us. We hope um, that you will enjoy the new episode. And in that episode, what we'll be doing is running some of the clips from this tonight's episode to talk about it in detail because we only get two hours here. And tonight, Ron Daniels, uh, the prolific activist, organizer, journalist, essayist, commentator, and former candidate, independent candidate for President of the United States is with us. And uh, we are so glad to be able to talk with him again. Um, I have in my lifetime spent hours and hours and hours talking with Ron Daniels, but it's never enough. Ron, thanks again for being with us. Uh, I am um, very impressed by the uh, work of the Institute of Black World 21st Century, and I hope that our listeners uh, will join you and your comrades and colleagues there uh, to um, to um, get ideas and solutions and create networks. Well, we hope so. You know, I mean, that's what we exist to do. And uh, if you go to the website, I mean, there's, I mean, there's just so much material there. Um, and we, we're proud to say that we have the most extensive online reparations resource center in the world, literally. Um, uh-huh. We're looking to organize it a little bit better so that you can, it's just like a library, you know, it's not organized as, as well as it should be, but well, while you there. were talking, I went and found the the piece uh, on on gentrification and the summit on gentrification in Newark um, last April. Oh yeah, no, that was that was. Uh, I mean, first of all, you, you, there's a town hall meeting. You can just look at the town. The town hall meeting was off the charts. But also, you'll find the the the, the essentially the summation that's there that shows what we're trying. Uh-huh. And we still try to move that forward. But again back to the guts and faith part, we're still, you know, toiling with guts and faith, but I think hopefully it looks like God willing and the creek don't rise uh, in the next 30, the next 90 days or so, it looks like we're, there's going to be a shift in which we're, you know, we finally will begin to break into the kind of resources we need to really move this agenda forward, because I absolutely know that we're on the right track. I know that what we do works. Uh, it's just that it's not really well understood in the foundation world, and frankly, there's been a there's been a there's been a a, a tremendous and I think correct investment uh, in young leadership, uh, okay. emerging leadership. But the problem is that you know you, you have people they they you know you get the you, they 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 get obsessed in one direction, and then you know I mean if I was sitting uh, in the last. Uh, Maybe the last decade, I probably would have put 60, 70% of my foundation resources in helping to cultivate some of these young people who are out here driving the conversation now. But then there are legacy organizations that are there that are doing well, NACP, Urban League, and them. But then there's a whole bunch of organizations like the social workers and the psychiatrists and so, I mean, you know, and then organizations like IBW who really almost get nothing. And mo- in fact, people aren't even aware of us the program people they don't even know who we are and that's a problem but we're starting to break through and frankly the way i've always worked 
uh, as an organizer is not to ever say, well, if we had the money, we would. No, no, no. If we, we started working on the war on drugs, we knew that the war on drugs is a war on us. We didn't know all of the the the, the sort of the strategies. We didn't know all of of what was entailed in understanding criminal justice policy, the history, and all of that. We have learned that, and we have learned a great deal about why it's important to reimagine a whole lot of stuff, including moving away from you know punitive systems. Moving you know this, this is why really legalization or at least decriminalization. It matters. It has nothing to do with whether people want to use drugs or not. That's beside the point. We're the ones who are targeted. We're the mm-hmm. ones who paid the disproportionate price. Michelle Alexander clearly laid out in her seminal work, The New Jim Crow, that this is a this was a deliberate strategy. We are. It's not just a class question. It's a. It's a. It, it is. It is a, a caste question. We were locked and could not get out of the trap that was uh, intentionally laid. Because of the war on uh, on war on drugs, and so you know, and 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 and, and so we, it's important for people to educate and learn and to know about harm reduction and a public health framework and reparatory justice ways of dealing with criminal justice policies. This is what is happening now with people talking about uh, defund. You know, it's in a way it it's, it scares a lot of people because you're talking about defunding, but they're not really they're really talking about creating a new as you would understand, a new way is to divest, invest. Movement for Black Lives talks about that all the time. Divest, invest. Divest in those systems that have harmed us. Invest in systems that will make us whole exactly. and safe. And, and that's the way we should be talking about uh, addressing uh, police departments across this country. When Absolutely. we talk about the funding of it's invest in something that works and something that gets to the heart of the problems. Uh, One of the things that uh, I have been thinking about uh, a lot lately is how did we get in the the 80s and 90s, how did we get so much done without email, without Internet? I mean, uh, with, and I was talking about Wednesday night on our show, that talking to, you talking to other people, calling Ron Walters and saying, Ron wants to do this, well, can we do it, calling Bob Law. I mean, all of those calls cost us money. There was no such thing as a, a zero cost to a, a long-distance phone call during that time. We didn't have email. Um, and, and, and how we got it, got some of this stuff done. And it really represents an infrastructure that I think is still critical, and how do we capture it uh, using the technology tools and using, uh, I mean, more than enough scholarly and academic work, more than enough uh, uh, re- uh, reading resources to to be able to 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 uplift a discourse in in our organizing. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about the political firewall. Right now, we are... Let's go go back to the premise that you just laid out for for a minute, uh, because I want to go you one better, uh, because we in IBW on, and we're we're scrambling to get this done now, because we we were, we, we dedicated this year to the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, 
Uh, and we did so because on August 1st is the 100th anniversary of Marcus Garvey's convening of the Negro peoples of the world in Harlem, in which he brought folks from over, from all over the world, Africans, the African continent, Central and South America, certainly Brit- France, Britain, United States, of course, over 3,000 people. And on the first night in Madison Square Garden, packed Madison Square Garden, overthrow 25,000 people. Now, you talk about getting something done. There was, there was no Instagram, Snapchat, email, any of those things. Facebook, yeah. None of that, Facebook, none of that was able to get that done in that period. And, that was, and that, again, that was because of a certain, a certain sense of commitment and a certain sense of determination. I mean, they talk about the, the Negro world, this newspaper, how people would, would, it would be shipped all over the world and they would grab copies on the African continent and then take them into the, the villages and then and, and they would sit around and, and, and read and interpret it. I mean, you talk about determination. I mean, that's, and, you know, so that's, so we really need to take another look at Marcus Garvey, and we're going to be doing that. Uh, but the other thing is that, you know, there is, there is the, the major problem it seems today is, is I think people are beginning to catch on to it, is that, is that everything is about synthesis. You know, I mean, you, you, there, there's a world, there's a world out here that, you know, like this, the, the Twitter, the Twitter world and, and, and the social media platforms where a lot of the young people, you know, do their work, right? Uh, but sometimes when I'm doing a radio show, I'll ask one of these young people, I said, is there a fellow telephone number? Is there a, you know, is there, and that, you know, and, and, and it won't be because they're, they, they're not, but, but, but when you don't have a phone number, there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of black people who still use phones. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who, 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 who who actually use other tools and not every not every not everybody's texting. Some people are doing email, but but people do listen and they need to connect. And so what we've tried to do is get people to understand that you can you use and, and Obama did this the second term, his second campaign. He understood that you use the internet to get to recruit the volunteers who can touch people. There's still something important about. The, the ability to actually emote, to feel, particularly for black people. It's probably true for all people, frankly. You know, I mean, to be able to touch people, to be able to interact with people. And so the challenge now is to be able to synthesize the old school organizing with the new school organizing in a way that gives us then this new synthesized mode of doing things. But it is no question that there is infrastructure among these young folk. I mean, they are they they are able to use the, these many of these demonstrations and so forth are not by happenstance. They are they are, and I know some of these folks. I know I'm on the emails. Run. They are planning and they are turning out more people than we ever were able to turn out. Thousands of people mm-hmm. hitting the streets. So we that's, I want to give them credit for that. The point is we want to have that bridge so that we we are we are connected. Uh, so that there's there's not a disconnect, for example, in terms of articulating the defunding of the police in a way that will frighten the hell out of a lot of older black people. You know, we can talk about how you language that and how you the narrative in a way that people say, oh, I understand what you're talking about. Because at the end of the day, 
you know, this cannot be one generation's movement. I mean, it, it will bump up against the wall of others who are out here who are saying, well, you can talk about changing the community if you want to. You're talking about not having no police in my community. I ain't hearing that. You know what I mean? So you've got to be able to to do the kind of educational work. And, and, then, and you're not going to be able to do that on the Internet. You're going to have to do some of that door-to-door. Some of that is mm-hmm. in, well, now it's virtual, and that's good in a certain sense. But at the end of the day, you have to really interface with and interact not only with yourself. You have to interact with a broader community in order to get that done. Otherwise, you know, there'll be resistance, there'll be hostility, it won't be a firewall. It'll be fractured, and we'll end up turning on each other because it will not have been been done right. But these young people, you know, they 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 are gifted at using this medium, uh, you know, these platforms, these social media platforms, and that what we are seeing in the streets today is unprecedented, and it's black led. Yeah. At the center of it is a black led, multiracial, cross generational movement the likes of which we have never seen in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And, and and my question um, in, in response to that is, how can we transform that orga- well-organized infrastructure into a firewall? And when I say a firewall for black people, a political firewall, I'm talking about independent politics. How can we break away from having to compromise as opposed to leverage. Well, I mean, I think I think I think there are discussions about that, and I think you know I think the the, the certainly again these young people are are you know they're they're creating first of all in the last election uh, the instinct was not to get involved in this messy game. Uh, really, really, and in, in, in in really showing a, a level of inexperience, which is still out there. The notion that somehow, you know, Hillary Clinton was the same as Trump is like ludicrous. I mean, it's just ludicrous. And the fact that you don't like somebody or you don't is is not the way you you do politics. It's not the way you deal with power. You know, you deal with power on the basis of interest, in the basis of an agenda. And and in most instances, it's not a perfect agenda. There is no such thing as a contradictionless movement or struggle in the middle of a contradiction. By by definition, there are core principles, core values that you have, but you're going to make tactical decisions. And black people are very good at it. I mean, you know, and people can say all oh, whatever they want to say about uh, them supporting Biden or whatever they want. I mean, black people were pragmatically trying to figure out how to stop the orange man or what Spike Lee is called Agent Orange, understanding that this is the greatest existential threat to black people and to people in general that we have seen. So black people, you know, were pragmatically looking for that. They were not looking necessarily for adventure. Didn't mean that they didn't necessarily agree with some of Bernie's positions or Elizabeth Warren's positions. In fact, the polling showed that they actually did. Their question was, who can win? Because at the end of the day, it is about winning in one way or another. Now, I'm in favor of certain kinds of campaigns because those campaigns amass influence, amass leverage. Ron Walters was the was the, the primary theoretician of, of presidential politics as leverage. Uh, but we're in a moment where, you know, we need to be thinking about 
how to, and that, by the way, I have to say, and I love my dear beloved Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson. He is one of the greatest leaders of all time in that regard, but the, that was the great failure of the Rainbow Coalition. The Rainbow Coalition should have been that third force. It should have been that independent mechanism which did what we talked about doing coming out of the 60s and the 70s, what we talked about in camp. In fact, my run for independent independent candidate for president and campaign for New, New Tomorrow was exactly because of the failure of the Rainbow Coalition to reach its potential as a third force in American politics. And by that I mean a force that has the ability to do community organizing, uh, building institutions in the community, uh, protests, which are critically important. The movements in the street are always the most important. Uh, but then manifesting that in, the, in the, the electoral arena based on agendas which allow you to support, run your own candidates, number one, or support progressive uh, Democrats. If there are progressive Republicans, there are none now currently ever, but there were times when we had choices. We simply, in, in this most recent period, have not had those choices. So we still need to move to that place. And I can tell you the formation right now that is coming closer to that, it's not exclusively a black formation, but it is certainly black-led. And, in fact, it's some of the same leadership that has evolved out of the movement for black lives is the Working Families Party. The Working Families Party is centered in these notions of the centrality, and we used to talk about this in Campaign for a New Development, the centrality of the agendas and leadership of black people and people of color. In fact, it was, I was going through some old records the other day, some old boxes, and, and read a, a, an article out of the Progressive magazine. I had even forgotten all about it. And this, this article was extolling what we did in Ypsilanti, the People's Convention that we called in Ypsilanti. Yes. Right, and, and, and they were talking about how stunned white progressives were that we actually had a progressive convention where it was not overwhelmingly white, where perhaps 50% of the people were actually people of color. And that was because of the way we organized it. We organized it in a way to make people of color, uh, black people and, and others, they were at, we were at the center, and we, we, we laid that out at the beginning. So that, therefore, we were in the center and in the lead. White people had to accept that as a premise, yeah. a principle. Uh, uh, this is not some arrogant proposition. It was understanding the nature and history of racism and white supremacy and white privilege means that in order to deal with that, you have to put the people who are, who are affected and most oppressed at the center. And, and it was, like, amazing what we did. So it can be done. And I think the Working Families Party deserves a look under the leadership of Maurice Mitchell and a number of other people who has he's surrounding himself with. I think this this formation has a real opportunity to emerge as a radical, transformative, black-led third force in American politics that also has ballot status in a couple of places and is going to get it in more. Well, we're 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 certainly. Um in support, uh, it's a grassroots, multiracial part, uh, party of working people. And I think that if we're going to have a firewall, it has got to be people who have an interest in protecting the resources, the political resources that we have. And I, I just can't 
think of you know you know the whole idea uh of how you move that into in, into regional organizing regional activism to begin to get people to realize that you can uh support electoral politics uh through the uh, the the traditional two party uh system but you also can be a part of building a, a an option at the same time well yeah and we and can I, and 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 so the the question is the question is you know at one point you know Danny Glover mused about can we do the rainbow again bill fletcher said the same thing one of the problems has been if you look at the Rainbow Coalition, which was a third force, which had the potential to be a third force, you know, it was it was it was it was built around the the brilliant, charismatic personality of the Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson, one of the most brilliant people uh of our era. And I mean that I mean now he's not just an orator. He was a man who understood how he public policy in a way that most civil rights leaders never really understood. So he was authentic in that regard, but but on the other hand, you know, the, the charisma meant that it, 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 the party went as he went. So when he decided to dismantle the rainbow as a as a mass based organization, which frankly I helped to build, put lots of energy in rainbowing the rainbow yeah. and making it, then that was a huge setback. Now the question is, then how do you how do you how do you build it? Well, what has happened is. A praxis has emerged among these young people, and I'm telling you that they're not personality centered. Doesn't mean that they don't. It doesn't mean that they don't. You know that they're not some stars among them. I know some because people have differential abilities and so forth. But that that, that does not stop them from working collaboratively, and so mm-hmm. they've taken that mm-hmm. praxis, and it is from these young people. That it's going to come. It's not going to come largely from the the, the current political class, because they are they are they too are, are personality driven. They're you know who's going to run, who's going to be in lead, and and you know and then who among them is even sufficiently charismatic, frankly, to to do what Reverend Jesse Jackson did. Because what he did was he could bring in the alphabets from the from the left, because you had all kind of this and that movements all splintered among the white left. Jesse Jackson was able to bring them all under an umbrella by the sheer force of his charisma, his personality, his person, but also his his praxis. I mean, going into his his economic common ground thing, where he's literally showing people that white farmers and 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 white workers could and white farmers could work with black workers and 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 urban people. And, and Marion Barry meeting uh, the the director uh, from from the from Texas, I forget his name now. You know, I mean, all that kind of work that was being done that was really illustrating how it got done. So it was not just his charisma, it was his praxis. So who, who has that? Who, is, who has that ability now? I don't know of anybody. And we've not been able to find anybody who has that. And quite frankly, it's not the best model because then you then if that personality is is liquidated or if that personality, you know, decides to to defect or do the wrong thing, then the structure crumbles. These young people are creating a different kind of proxies. And so it becomes incumbent upon us, people like myself, to work with them, as I'm trying to do, and others who are working with them as well, 
so that they also learn that they must move beyond their generation to interface with the broader black community. And what that means is a participatory politics, which does not exist now. We go from election to election. That is not election. Elections do not equal democracy. Participation is democracy. And so we need people who are who are in between elections, building relationships in the churches, in the civic groups, and so forth. And, and then when you do that, you, there's a certain humility that you get beyond your revolutionary ideas. You have to talk. You have to learn how to just talk to people like you. You have to talk to people and work, build these relationships. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that, that that is emerging uh, with folks who are in the movement for black lives, in their justice uh, political formation that they have, and also the interrelationship between that and this formation called the Working Families Party that is actually, you know, they have people who have actually, um, even in this most recent primary, who have won, who are winning political office. And, by the way, they're pragmatic. They're not doctrinaire. They, they're not just running for the sake of running. And in some instances, they end up with, in relationships with people who are moderate or people who are liberal. So they're not mm-hmm. just like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, sectarian, which is the death. You've got a whole lot of people who can master the rhetoric who can't bust a grape. You've got to be able to win something. Winning means a campaign. That means you may be able to win, um, uh, like people are winning in the streets right now. People are winning concessions in the street. You have to be able to do that, and as well as elections and so forth. You cannot just be you know, a rhetorical revolutionary and cannot deliver something because the people, as Gabral said, do not struggle for ideas alone. They struggle for an improvement in the material condition. Someone in our chat room is asking uh, me to check with you about how the Working Families Party intersects with the work that Reverend William Barber is doing with the Poor People's Campaign. I don't know the answer to that. I I don't know. I, I would suspect that there's some synergy, but I don't know, and that is one of the areas where I think some bridging needs to be done. Um, frankly, what happened, <laughs> there was a way among some of these young people who really got turned off by some of the faith leaders that had been on the scene whom they seen as being opportunist and self-serving and whatever, and they made the mm-hmm. mistake, some of them, of generalizing and then really not having a, a sort of a respect for some of uh, some of the older leadership, and which is really a mistake. Mm-hmm. But I think some uh-huh. of that is now. Uh, I think some of that is now being uh, is 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 being bridged, you know, in in some ways. So, uh, but but there are people, you know, like us who try to keep our eyes open for stuff like that. That's certainly something I, I'll be asking more questions uh, about um, the Poor People's Campaign itself. Great respect for. Uh, Reverend Barber, uh, and my respect for him has to do with the fact that he's a reluctant leader. I like reluctant leaders. I mean, Reverend mm-hmm. Barber did not want. He's a, to he's, be, a re, he, he's a reluctant face. Reluctant. Um, yeah, I, I I don't think that he's reluctant about his leadership. I think he's just reluctant to to be the face. Of the poor people. No, no, I, I, know, I know, I know what I'm saying. I'm saying, I, you know, when, when I when I say reluctant leaders, yeah, I know he understands, but I'm saying he does not aspire 
to, he doesn't aspire yeah. to. There's a different way of leading. So he he was okay. content, frankly, to be, you know, the 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 moral Monday leader in L.A. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, North in North Carolina. People were saying, but no, we want you to. No, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think you know we need local. I mean, I, you know, but there's a way in which there are certain people at certain times. Mm-hmm. It's like Martin. I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure Martin. Martin didn't aspire to be to lead the Montgomery bus boycott. I mean, that wasn't his aspiration. The people called him to do that. Now, I'm saying that there are a lot of people who have an appetite, who thirst to be leaders, who want the camera. I mean, that's their, you know what I mean? And that's problematical. Yeah. Doesn't mean that some good may not come from it, and sometimes it does. But reluctant leaders are people who you can trust more because their definition of themselves is not caught up in celebrity. It's not caught up in in in, in sort of a, a model of leadership that has to do with celebrity and prominence and all that. I mean, Reverend Barber mm-hmm. has achieved the prominence not because he sought it, because of the work that he did. And so, you know, I like reluctant leaders in that sense. I mean, he's a servant leader, and that's the model uh, that we need. Now, one of the questions that will emerge is, you know, is, is, you know, Poor People's Campaign, if I can get ready to do a presentation tomorrow for the um, NACP public meeting here in uh, in Corona and uh, East Elmhurst. And, you know, I'm going to be talking about King's chaos, the community, King's vision in the, in the middle of COVID and, and police murders. And, and a part of it is, what King was doing at the end of his life. So it was Poor People's Campaign, but it was also about an economic bill of rights. And I, I you know, so I want to, I'd like to hear more of that, of what, I mean, if, you know, because he's inheriting that mantle, but the Poor People's Campaign ultimately, and I think it would be good to articulate that basic bill of rights. And the other thing is, you know, I mean, yeah, moral movement is good, but, you know, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to make it so moral that it becomes almost, you know, it, it almost becomes. It, it, you can almost take the the, the life out of it in, in a way, in your effort yeah, to be yeah. so accommodating. Yeah. And yeah. you have and to be. I'm sorry. No, go. You have to be careful. What? You also have to be careful. I think of of when we have to see how it emerges. How 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 many the degree to which the thing we talked about earlier? How much will it really be a black centered centered in the African American community? That is mm-hmm. to say, what will the ultimate fellowship be? It would have been great to see if, in fact, there could have been the actual turnout. You know, what would the composition have looked like? Um, mm-hmm. Because sometimes you can become so race neutral that you know that that black folks don't see themselves in it mm-hmm. in the way that that they ought to in some ways, and it still is the case that I believe that in a principal way, you know black folk and other people of color have got to be at the center their concerns, and it has to be that was my one critique of the of the Jackson campaign, quite frankly, I thought it was. You know, the economic common ground thing got pushed in a way that I would have, I would have, I would have wanted Jesse to use the Reverend Jackson to have used that opportunity to teach more about the nature of racism. 
You know, in a way, yeah, you gave people yeah. a pass. You know, you have to yeah. use these opportunities to let people know about racism, to know what structural racism it is. I mean, it's economic common ground and all that, but you people have to learn. Otherwise, you don't really, at the end of the day, overcome it, which is why I was proud. No, where I, no matter where I went, the message was the same. If I talked to white yeah. people in Vermont, it was reparations. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I talk yeah. to black people, you know what I mean. I mean, I didn't yeah. care. I mean, it was, yeah. I, I could, the message yeah. was the same. I was not trying to, because it was based on print. And then when I talked to, just like today, be honest about the same thing. I do the same thing about movement for Black Lives. Black Lives Matter. You know, and I take heat sometimes because one of the greatest things about Black Lives Matter was their notion. They they came. They brought black back strong, but they made sure they were talking about all black people. And because they talked yeah, about yeah. all black people, there are many more Audre Lords and Bayard Rustins and James Baldwins who can flourish without having to worry about somebody, you know, somebody's homophobia. You know what I mean? And yeah, some people get yeah. nervous about that and they talk about, well, no, no. All black people are engaged now. Some of the most brilliant minds we have are brilliant are people who are LBGDQI folk, you know, and, and in a minute we'll be over it, and that's good because all of us together, mm-hmm. all that genius is out there and, and moving in a brilliant, brilliant kind of way. And in inside their movement, they're coming for us on those issues. They are calling us to task on them. Uh, back in May we had Dr. Toure Reed um, from um, uh, uh, talking about his book, um, on forward freedom, toward freedom, the idea talking about uh, his book talks about the idea that we have to be very careful and create um, um, a consciousness about race reductivism, trying to reduce race from the issues of racial. <laughs> of racial discrimination um and i really highly re- recommend uh his book uh in talking about class issues that in that intersectionality and i think it would also apply uh to other oppressed people that we have to begin to be cautious about reducing the nature of race in it all yeah, I, 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 I just let's talk about reparations for a while. Tell me about what IBEW and NARC, uh, which is the IB, IBW twenty one um, project. Well, commission. Yes, an initiative. It, it is it is convened and administered by the Institute of the Black World 21st Century, and uh, I serve as convener of the National African American Reparations Commission, and um, and I've been a you know a longtime proponent of uh, reparations. I'm a lifetime member of Encobra. It must be said that Encobra, um, in the last uh, probably half century um, or or so. Uh, was the leading organization advocating for reparations. I was mentored by our 10-point program is dedicated to the memory of Queen Mother Audley Moore. She was my mentor. Yes, yes. She's the one who operates. She, she said she, 
She said she was a brain surgeon. She operated on constipated minds, and mine was one of them. But I'm delighted. That, I, I, I hope the, the surgery was reasonably successful because I needed it, <laughs> you know. So, um, but, but, but. The, the, you know, and for many, many years, Congressman John Conyers, uh, may God rest his soul, was, you know, he was my closest friend and dearest ally in the Congress, and, and we had a great relationship for years and years and years. And he asked me to be the person who essentially moderated the um, the forum each year on H.R. 40. And H.R. 40 was introduced in 1989. It was uh, coming out of, inspired by a an advocate in uh, Detroit called Reparations Ray, who kept pushing the congressman. How come you're not dealing with reparations? And so eventually he put H.R. 40 together, and it was a bill to study uh, the issue of reparations and whether or not enslavement uh, was warranted um, remedy in terms of reparations. And that's the way the bill remained for many, many years. And many of us saw it as an educational tool because he said at least, I mean, come on, people, young, shouldn't we just at least study it? I mean, and people... Could could rally around it. A lot of organizations said, "Yeah, that was a that was a least common denominator as an educational tool." But quite frankly, you know, after 9/11, and then some tragedies took place inside of uh, in Cobra. I mean, some of the the, the founders, including Omario Bedelli and others, passed on, and and in, and in Cobra was 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 there, but not as the movement nor in Cobra was as strong as it had once been. And so the the event really that began to turn things around happened in about 2014 or so, when the 15 nations of the Caribbean, who are not all on the same page, some of them are moderate, some of them are conservative, some of them are radical, only a couple of them are radical, decided unanimously to demand of the European, the former European uh, colonialist reparations for native genocide and African enslavement. I mean, they took a bold step. And it's bold because they're still dependent. I mean, they're still very dependent upon these colonizers. But they said, you created this mess, you need to come and clean it up. And they created something called the CARICOM Reparations Commission, and they asked all of the 15 nations to do similarly, and they adopted a 10-point reparations program. Well, as we sat at the Congressional Black Caucus Brain Trust that year with just a handful of people, because it began to be it was just a few people. The true believers would come every year, all 50 of us and so forth. And, and it was really didn't have really much juice and much steam. You know, we seized that opportunity along with somebody had found some, some little-known or little-heard tape of Martin Luther King's talking about the Homestead Act and all kinds of ways in which black people had been deprived and he ended up by saying if we're going to Washington to get our check <laughs> we took those two elements uh, Sister Doctor, uh, Sister Reverend Joanne Watson out of Detroit and um, Dr. Julianne Malvo Sister Nkichi Taifa and others we said we are going to use this as a way of helping to strengthen the reparations movement in this country, and 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 that began a, a series of organizing pieces that were just absolutely amazing. We went, we brought um, the, the Professor Sir Hillary Beckles, uh, who was substituting for uh, Dr. Ralph Gonzalez, the leader who was leading the charge on reparations at the moment at Chicago State University, packed auditorium, a thousand people. It was 
Doctor, it was Reverend Doctor Jeremiah Wright. It was Conyers. It was it was Minister Louis Farrakhan. I mean, the, the, it was filmed. It went to over ten thousand people with all over the world. And ultimately, we went and convened and built our own National African American Reparations Commission. And began to look at developing a ten point program. And in 2015, in New York City, we convened an international reparation summit that brought people from over 22 nations from all over the world to New York City. And we had an interface between the CARICOM Reparations Commission and the National African American Reparations Commission. So what that represents now is this. Our 10-point program is 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 a formidable 10-point program, and our goal has been to educate people with it. Danny Glover has been with us all the way, Muriel Fignon, Mendes France, the daughter of France Fignon. Uh, I mean, it's just been a remarkable ex- experience. So 10-point program, but what we also did was H.R. 40 is no longer that same bill. A lot of people don't know that. It's no longer a study bill. It is now, because of the work of NCOBRA, working with NARC, has transformed that bill into a bill that is now a study bill, but is to study reparations proposals for African Americans. So now the bill is about what form will reparations take, not if it is warranted. That is the bill that's now before the Congress of the United States, which has more sponsors than ever before, 128, I think, as up to date, and we're pushing towards 150 Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Dear Beloved Friends, I've worked for many, many years, inherited the torch from Congressman John Condors, and she is on a mission. She is on fire pushing H.R. 40. Um, Nancy Pelosi is on board. All of the, the leadership of the Democratic Party in the House is on board. Chuck Schumer is on board. There's a Senate version of the bill as well. And so reparations now is no longer a marginal issue presidential candidates are talking about corporate you can't hardly turn on television a day at all when somebody's not talking about reparations because the movement the intergenerational movement of our people from the randall robinsons from the uh the 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 bill the bill um uh, our bill um uh, senator bill um up in in, in massachusetts bill, you know our, our, who introduced the the bill in the massachusetts um Legislator calling for reparations, uh, the, the exploratory, uh, gave it a big boost. Uh, Deidre Pellman, uh, who filed uh, the lawsuits, Ogletree, I mean, all of this going all the way back to Cali House, Bill Owens. I mean, that movement has ripened. And then came Tanahashi Coates with this article in The Atlantic that just set the world on fire. And then the movement for live black lives embracing it. So we're now looking at, I mean, H.R. 40 is going to pass when we eradicate the orange man. Mm-hmm. It will pass mm-hmm. and will become law, and people will actually be looking at what form should reparations take. On our website, I'm telling I mean, I just, Mark Thompson just sent me an article. Somebody went from Forbes magazine. I mean, just making the case. This is a white guy making yeah, the case. Reparations, yeah. you know, uh, 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 um, then uh, uh, David Brooks, the conservative, tr- traditional, not the, not crazy folk, traditional Republican conservative uh, on, on PBS News I mean, every week, you know, Brooks and Shields, they do their thing. David Brooks has said, look, I'm persuaded. Reparations should be done. I mean, 
That's where we are. Now, here's the issues we have to deal with. Our commission has determined that not everything that everybody talks about is reparations. So ordinary public policy, if you decide there's a jobs program, yeah, we need a jobs program. Well, you can't say, well, we're gonna, we're here, we'll pay the Negroes off, we'll have a job. No, no, that's for everybody. Uh, uh, Clyburn um, from uh, South Carolina, able, capable, very brilliant man, very brilliant. He's been some reluctant about reparations, not so much about reparations. He said, I want to do something now. So he has this formula. It's called a 1032 whatever. I don't remember the formula. But that formula would target districts that have a certain amount of poverty and so no matter where they are. And by and, and so doing, it would hit a lot of black communities. And he said, well, I think that's refer- – no, that's not reparations. That's ordinary public policy, and it's damn good public policy. I support it. Reparations are for – Enslavement and all of the post-emancipation ex- racially exclusionary policies that targeted and harmed and maimed and underdeveloped black people. That's what reparations are for. And it comes right up to the present, including the war on drugs, redlining, and all of those things that are involved in it. And in so doing, when you start talking about reparations, it has to be based on a process, which is talking about you know, secession and non-repetition, restitution, compensation, satisfaction, rehabilitation, following a following an apology, and we must be in a situation where the 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 the, the victimizer, the 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 party or institution that inflicts the harm, cannot define what the remedy is. That's contrary to the principles of restorative justice. And so, what has to happen is the parties that have been harmed have to determine what the remedy must be, and there must be the ability to have independent capacity to administer resources. So, for example, in our 10-point program, we have something called a reparations finance authority, which is there to receive reparations so that we can independently administer them, not that the government says, okay, and we will give this and get No, if you're going to give a billion dollars, then you give that billion dollars to a reparations finance authority, which is will be you know activists, organizers, very prestigious, very capable, able people. We will make that decision, and we recommend that that be a part of any reparations a component that happens city by city, institution by institution. And Evanston, Illinois, is setting the example because they have created a group of stakeholders. The stakeholders they have a subcommittee on reparations. They make the proposals to the city council. And it's being set up where resources can go to a um, – they're, they're eventually going to have their own reparations finance authority, but the decisions are being driven by black stakeholders as opposed to someone deciding, well, we'll give you some scholarships or we'll give you this and give you that. That might be wow. largesse. That might be generous um, on your part, but that may not be what we want. It may not be what we need, and you don't get to make that decision. Wow. That would be, Ron, as you as you're talking, that would be just such a wonderful uh, benchmark for your career to have that happen. To have that, I mean, I've been looking. You know, I had to spend two two years under a do not disclose agreement with the federal government, and so. I haven't been able to really, you know, <laughs> bounce in 
in the way that that uh, I've, I've wanted to. But what I've been looking for ways. How do I want the end part of my life to resonate? Right. right On what? Right. You know, um, I, I had started trying to build a whole new generation of black talkers, um, and that was one of the things that I that I could have done that that I can do. But looking at the idea that there would be a reparations commission authority do what we have been talking about since Gary. Oh yeah. That's your whole lifetime. Yep, it is. It is and 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 it is uh it is ripening. We just have to break through because all kind of articles are written, and they, and even sometimes when we get interviewed, um, we, we don't get referenced because we don't have, and we're on the brink of getting there, we don't have the resources to do the kind of campaign or the kind of uh, media cultivation that's required yeah. so that you, we are, yeah. we're, we're, we're seen and whatever. But there was a piece done by Axios, um, a woman named uh I can't remember the name right now but uh, uh it was a last minute call and um and uh and um the the article came out yesterday um uh, mm-hmm. and uh yeah Courtney I'm looking at her name is Courtney I forget the last name but um and I'm and, posting yeah. it in our chat room Everything you've been talking about, I've been transcribing into our chat room. Yeah, so Courtney, Courtney did this article, and it's last minute, and then we have we end up educating people. And by the way, that major last Juneteenth, last Juneteenth was whew, incredible public hearing on HR forty. That's where Danny Glover, Tanahashi Coast, Dr. Julianne Malvo, where all three of them were people yeah, that we helped yeah. get on the panel. I, all three of yeah. them. Malvo is on the commission, so she is directly our person. And we, we orchestrated that whole piece. And then what I put people on know now is the American Civil Liberties Union, which is, you know, a major white progressive organization, has endorsed reparations and has a fundamental partnership with the National African American Reparations Commission. So that very afternoon we did at the historic uh, Metropolitan AME Church, we did a major forum. Uh, about 1,000 people came to that, 800 to 1,000. And, and 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 it's interesting because we have somebody who came to us just the other day who was trying to donate some land actually to this reparations piece um, because she saw the form in in Charles I mean uh, not there she didn't see that but then we went to Charleston did another one and then we just on on May 31st did a major piece in Tulsa incredible piece and then in order to just focus on NARC alone. On Juneteenth, and people can see that on the website right now. It has now so it's over 110,000 views so far. Yeah, we uh, posted we, we posted it uh, in our chat room. Right. Yeah, and uh-huh. people are still looking at that. So we're 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 yeah. we're we're getting there. And by the way, there's something now called a group of white folks who said we want reparations now. I mean, can we help? Something called the Fund for Reparations Now has been created. And that's designed to focus on some aspect of the 10-point program, particularly point nine, 
sacred site. So I really encourage yeah. your listening audience to take time to just go through that yeah. ten point, read it. It's not that long. You can do it in fifteen minutes. You can read the whole thing, but but it's I think it's a powerful document, and 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 spend some time in the reparations resource center. I mean, it's just you can just bathe and just article after article, videotape studies. I mean, it's just it's just an incredible yeah. uh, resource. Well, Ron Daniels, it has been a wonderful time with you. A tonight. wonderful time. I didn't know how much time. You know, it's got to be wonderful because I don't let nobody keep me for two hours. It had to be <laughs> the chairperson of my campaign. It had to have been Janice Graham because I'm saying, well, I should have asked in advance because I think about an hour. I said, oh, no. That's why I was speaking fast at the last time. I thought I was Wait, about open. So, oh, you, no. We're going you know, to part of our part of our marketing of this show is that we don't do drive-bys. We dig <laughs> okay. deep. <laughs> we drill well, down. Right. Well, well, this hour, this hour tonight, I have to dig deep, and I dig deep for you though, because you be Janice Graham and it's our common ground and chairman of my can chairperson of my campaign. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I had to be ready for the revolution. Well, I'm certainly going to be. Um, our common ground is an official uh, supporter of IBW 21. We play your stuff. We we talk about you. Uh, we use you as a reference uh, and your resources. So uh, I hope you'll come back uh, as we go out tonight. I'm asking people to check out IBW21.org and Dr. Rand Daniels. He's going to have Barbara Arnwine, who is also an Our Common Ground voice, on Vantage Point on Monday at 3 o'clock on WBAI. Check him out. Ron Daniels, thank you so much, and my love to Mary. I did. I would definitely. And she came down for a minute, just a minute ago. I guess she was trying to hear what I was talking about. So I'll go upstairs and tell her that you said hello. <laughs> okay. And hopefully we'll get together. We'll figure out. You know, I'm free now, and I've got a library of nothing but federal housing in my head. So whatever yeah. you need. <laughs> All right. Well, well, that we 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 we're working on this gentrification thing, so that may be an that may be a fit. Okay. Thank All you, right. Ron. Thank you. Appreciate Dr. You. Ron Daniels, um, IBW21.org. We hope that you will become a supporter. Thank you so much for being with us here at our common ground tonight. Don't forget. We're on board on Wednesday, and we may have a surprise for you on Wednesday, so you better show up and so that we can show out. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your weekend. Be safe. Stay secure. The pandemic is not over, and the traitor is still in your house. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves. The city has that stagger on the coastline in a nation. I just can't stand much more Like the forest Buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow 
it's a winner. Winter in America. Listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Organizing movements that truly hold the Democratic Party accountable, or perhaps forming another party. Um, you know, which I think the Bernie Sanders campaign has demonstrated that there are millions of people out there um, who are hungry um, for a different kind of politics and who want their politicians to be, you know, treating um, you know the American voters as though they matter. Kimani Gray, say his name. Kimani Gray. Say his name, Kimani Gray, won't you say his name? John Crawford, say his name. John Crawford, say his name. John Crawford. 
You know, America's chocolate citizens are crying out yet again. That same phenomenon, our issue with race in this country, we have to deal with this, and we have to go beyond conversations to action. Janice Graham.
Peace.